Hey, good morning. My name is Corey Mitchell, and I am one of our elders here at LAFC. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. So if you need a Bible to join us in our time of study, the ushers can provide you with a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it, make it your own, spend time in personal study. So this is a series that is very near and dear to my heart because over the past 15 years here at LEFC in our various uh, adult Bible fellowships, our ABFs, I've been teaching a three-month series uh, on the book of Deuteronomy. And that series began way back when. Uh, it came out of a time of significant personal study. And that time of study started with a simple yet profound conclusion that I'd come to. And that conclusion was, I don't think that I understand or see the law in the same way that Jesus or Peter or Paul did. And I want to understand it. I want to get it. And so I set out on this time of personal study of the law. I chose Deuteronomy uh, as the fullest representation of it. And when I did that, I had one prayer request of God, and that was, show me your heart in your law. And that's my same prayer request that I have for us this morning in our time of study. Jesus, you are the word made flesh. Show us your heart in your law. So this morning, we are in the sixth command. We're looking at the sixth commandment, do not murder. So a number of weeks back, my, my daughter Gina asked me what I was going to be preaching on, and I said, do not murder, sixth commandment, and she said, here's what you should do. <laughs> she said, you should walk up and open your Bible and say, do not murder, drop the mic, walk off, shortest sermon ever. <laughs> and as tempting as that was, I thought we probably should do a little bit more than that. Plus, you can't really drop the, drop the headset. It's not the same as dropping a mic. So anyway. But there is something to the succinctness of the commandment. There's something to that idea, the brevity of them. Uh, so up on the screen, you're going to see the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. And this sixth commandment launches the next three that kind of go together. In fact, on the screen, you'll see they are uh, grouped together, six through eight. And each of those commandments is just two Hebrew words, and they could most simply be translated as no murder, no adultery, no steal. Truly written in stone. And uh, Thomas Cahill, I love this quote. So Thomas Cahill, he's an author and a historian writing about this, says, here for the first and I think the last time Human beings are offered a code without justification. They just are. This is just right. These are inscribed by the finger of the living God. Now, the sixth commandment is found in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 13, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. But I want to use a different text for our uh, focus text this morning, and that is in Genesis chapter 9. So please open up to Genesis chapter 9. Join me there. So, little context, Genesis chapter 9 is, uh, chapter 8 is the flood has ended, the flood of Noah has ended, and they've come out of the ark. And God is reinstituting his covenant with humanity through Noah uh, here at the beginning of chapter 9. Includes the rainbow promise that he makes that he'll never destroy the earth through flood again. I want to read uh, verses 5 through 7. So, Genesis 9, 5 to 7. Follow along with me if you would. 
And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So I want to talk about each of these three verses. In, in, in elaborating on the sixth commandment, I want to look at each three. And I want to start with the middle in verse six. Let me read that one uh, on its own just again. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now, just one simple observation. This text is long before, right? This, this event here with Noah, this is long before God gives his law uh, through Moses and through uh, inscribing it on stone. It's long before Abraham, long before the gospel being announced in advance to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. So one of the points is this is for all times, all peoples everywhere, even if you don't have Torah, even if you don't have the law of Moses, this is still uh, for, for everyone. And the second thought, is, the second part of it is it's a reminder that regardless of the nation, regardless of the people, that laws must be just. Laws must be just, and that nation will be held, held accountable not just for having just laws, but that they would uphold those just laws. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, over my years of studying Deuteronomy, one of the thoughts that I have is I feel like I want to try to recover a proper biblical understanding of the phrase eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Because I sometimes get the impression how we hear that or what we've heard from others is that it's like a perpetuation of violence or that it's about you know vengeance or vindictiveness and so forth. And if you look at the three places in the law where that phrase occurs, that is not the context of the phrase. That's not the understanding or the, or the intent. The intent is... That, the, that laws must be fair. They must be just. Uh, in our legal system, we have the statue of justice, and there's two characteristics. One is it's blind, right, the blindfold, and the second is holding the scales. And the idea, right, is it has to, there has to be fairness. The one who has suffered loss must receive proper restitution, right? It has to be made right. And so here, simple idea, simple understanding, not just eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but life for life. The one who has taken the life of another human will, is forfeit of their own life. And the, and the judgment, if you will, of that is to be carried out by humans also. We have that responsibility. And the explanation that's given in the text is because we uniquely among all of God's creation bear the image of God. We are his image bearers. And to take the life of another human is to take, a li take the life of a, an image bearer of the living God. And this is of both high worth and high accountability in his sight. Uh, back in January of 2019, I preached a sermon uh, named The Weightier Matters. So this is uh, B.C., right, before COVID. Uh, sorry, we have a new B.C. So 
2019, January 2019, I preached this sermon, The Weightier Matters, and many of the elements of that sermon really are part of kind of what I would express today, but I don't want to repeat all of those elements, so I'd, I'd say, okay, I'll just refer you back to that. Uh, you can listen to that, but I do, there's two things that I do want to bring forward from that sermon into this one. The first one is going to be up on the screen, and it's a chart that I shared at that time, and it's a chart that I use in the Deuteronomy series to explain how I see the law of God. And so at the top of the chart is the greatest commandment and the one that's like it. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he didn't cite any of the Ten Commandments. He quoted from actually the next chapter in Deuteronomy, from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So at the top, we have to understand the greatest commandment and the one that's like it. But in hanging off of those are the 10. As Tony described last week, the first four commandments, one to four, further explaining what it looks like to love God. And the latter six, five to 10, explaining what it looks like to love our neighbors ourselves. And then at the bottom, representing all of the rest of the commandments, whatever they might be, uh, is represented here by Deuteronomy 12 through 26. And the idea there is that those commands, those laws further explicate the 10. Now, if we don't understand the greatest commandment and the one that is like it, if we don't get that, if it's not written on the heart, we're never gonna understand the rest of them. We'll never get it. It will be in our lingo and exercise in legalism. But the opposite's also true. If we do get it, if we understand the greatest commandment and the one that's like it, then when we study and we look into these other commandments, we can get it. We can understand uh, what God is speaking through those commandments. So uh, the exercise, one of the exercises I did back in that January, and I want to repeat it this morning, is, well, let's do that. Let's go look at one of these uh, other texts. Uh, in this case, it's going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 19. You can turn there. Deuteronomy 19, and we want to use the text to further explicate to, uh, the sixth commandment and to really answer one particular question, and that is, but what is murder? So Deuteronomy 19, when you get there, you'll notice the heading uh, is likely to say cities of refuge. Uh, and so there's going to be another, another uh, picture up on the screen, a map that shows the land, shows these uh, cities of refuge, so just an explanation. The, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, they didn't get their own block of land like the rest of the tribes. Uh, but what they did get uh, was designated Levitical cities in all the rest of the tribes. So they're the, inter they're the intercessor tribe. Out of the Levites come the priests. They're the intercessors uh, for the nation, if you will, between God and man. So they have cities in each of the tribes. And a subset of those, the six that you see up on the screen, are specifically cities of refuge. So I'm going to read from 4, verse 4 to verse 13, uh, and then we'll talk through this. All right, picking up in 4. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there, there being the city, a city of refuge, for safety. Anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice of forethought. For instance... A man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. 
that man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he promised on oath to your ancestors, and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of, die, of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So first thing, like looking at this map and Part of the idea, and you see in the text here, is they have to be spaced in such a way that someone who has killed somebody accidentally can get there before the avenger of blood catches up to them. So if, they, if the land expands and they have more land, you know, they you know, uh, have more cities of refuge. Now, what is the avenger of blood? So this avenger, this is not Thor or Iron Man or Captain America or the Hulk. Different type of an avenger. This is a family member of the one who has been killed who is charged with the responsibility of bringing justice. The root Hebrew word, the root Hebrew word for this word avenger is the same root word that you find in the book of Ruth that is translated there, kinsman redeemer. So there the kinsman redeemer the family member is charged with the responsibility. If a man dies and he did not have any children, that a family member will marry the widow and that she can have children and not be left destitute and that the name of the man will continue, his, his line will continue. And so Boaz in the book of Ruth is the kinsman redeemer. This is a different kind of redeemer uh, here. This is a redeemer who is responsible to the family Right, to make sure that the one who has been lost, that there is justice on their behalf. Now, the avenger of blood is not the only player in this account. We also have the town elders, the elders of the town of the man or woman who has been killed. And they have a responsibility, and their responsibility is to go and look into the matter and to adjudicate it and to determine was it an accident? Was it intentional? What happened? In, there's a parallel passage in Numbers chapter 35 on cities of refuge. And there it's, it says this about this responsibility of the elders. These cities will be places of refuge from the avenger so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. The assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood. So the elders here have a responsibility. And it's not just to adjudicate the matter, right, but to protect. 
Protect the one who is, been res is responsible for the death of another. Protect them from that family member. Adjudicate the matter. Come to the conclusion, the judgment, if you will. And if indeed it is not an accident, it is with malice aforethought, they are, they are to hand that person over to the avenger of blood. And, but now their action in carrying out justice is uh, deemed a just one, right? Not revenge, not out of rage that is used earlier in the text. What we have here is the beginning of an orderly, purposeful, intentional system of justice. We're so used to it, right, in our culture. We're so, we're so familiar with this. It's hard to imagine there was a time when it wasn't so. But that's what's happening here. It goes on in the rest of the, rest of the chapter to talk about witnesses, uh, talks about the judges, talks about making thorough investigations. And back in the Numbers 35 text, uh, it, has this, it says this as well. Do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. The idea being, again, those equal scales. No favoritism. No respecter of persons. A wealthy person cannot just simply pay to, to get out of the responsibility of what they've done. That's not just. Right, that idea. So Thomas Cahill, who I quoted earlier, um, I think expounds on this idea of how revolutionary this, these texts are, how revolutionary the law of God is. Uh, he writes this, it's gonna be up on the screen. He writes this about, uh, about the, the scriptures here, the Hebrew scriptures. It may be said with some justice that the Hebrew scriptures are the only new idea that human beings have ever had. But their worldview has become so much a part of us that at this point, it might as well have been written into our cells as genetic code. I, I love this quote. Perhaps the only new, this text, right? What we're looking at, these, these scriptures, perhaps the only new idea that humans have ever had. That's how revolutionary it was at the time. It's become so much a part of us, right? It might as well have been written into our genetic code. For us, this is normal, but this is revolutionary uh, for the time. God instituting a system that is orderly and that is just, uh, changing the way mankind might carry it out. And verses four through six are also, um, you know, really helpful for us. Thinking about our own legal system, if it's unintentional, um, we have, we have a word for that that we use in our system of justice. We call it manslaughter, right? It's unintentional, but there's responsibility. And so that idea of what's murder, first degree, secondary uh, versus manslaughter, or, you know, we have various gradations. We have a much more sophisticated system, but this is the beginnings of that. So this is manslaughter. That person is not going to be forfeit of their life. And this is... Uh, a powerful reminder to me, one of the things that I've, I've found over my years of looking into Deuteronomy is how much our system of justice in the United States is still founded on these texts, how much it still sits right on top of these uh, powerful and revolutionary ideas of the day. So I, uh, in fact, I, I did an internet search uh, in prep and preparing, and I searched for degrees of murder. And as I was typing it in, I had this very strange sense of like, 
why are you searching for this, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we all have that thought, who knows what we search or whatever. And so, like, why are you searching this? And so if anything goes down, you guys have my back, right? That this was sermon prep. That's why I was looking it up. But one of the things that's interesting, so I, I looked at a, several different sites referring to, you know, you know our system of justice and, and uh, about murder and degrees of murder. And the phrase that we have here in the text is still there in our own legal system to this day, with or without malice aforethought. You will still find that phrase. This is still so foundational uh, in our lives. Now, an observation. The very first human being ever born, Cain, was a murderer. He murdered his brother Abel. You remember the text? Uh, Abel's blood called out from the ground. His innocent blood called out from the ground to God uh, to receive justice. But, but Cain did not forfeit his life. If you know the text, he did not forfeit his life. That was not uh, what God, that was not the judgment upon him. In fact, God marked Cain so that no one else would kill him. He protected him in that regard. So is this justice? Is this injustice? Well, obviously, we're going to say it's just, right? What God does, he's the judge of all the earth, and won't he do right? Absolutely. So I think it doesn't necessarily mean that the verdict will always be the forfeiture of life. But this does matter that there must be justice. It must be just verdicts. Part of the idea here is a social responsibility that we have to one another. Uh, and if, if justice in any system, any nation, any people, any community, any society, if just a system of justice becomes a system of just us or just them, we will quickly revert back to being avengers of blood. We're going to look out for our own. If, right, if it's an unjust system, then we'll, we will look out for our own. And so that can't happen. There must be justice. There must be fairness. And that even in our, even, uh, in our systems of justice, we also want to be a culture that understands what mercy looks like in, depending on the situation. So all of these ideas, and I, 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 love, I love the scriptures that they speak to the human condition honestly and frankly. Our propensities towards violence or selfishness or whatever it might be, it speaks to it frankly. When I see a phrase like at the end of this text that says, so that it may go well with you, so that it may go well with you. Just like last week in Tony's message on honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you. Yes, I think about, oh, if we do these things, it will go well with us. But what I, what I often think first is, if we don't do these things, it won't go well for us. If we dishonor, if we don't honor our mother and father, Tony talked about, right, shorter life, different aspects of that, right? It goes downhill. The same thing for a society that does not have just laws. It will degenerate quickly. That leads me back. So this idea of social responsibility leads me back to our core text. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to, I'll read this uh, verse from back from Genesis 9. In this case, verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. 
So in that same account in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, if you know the text, you remember the text, uh, God, that blood called, that innocent blood calls out from the ground to God. He hears, he approaches Cain, and he says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And although his question is not explicitly answered in that text, the implicit answer, as we consider the scriptures, is yes. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. We will be called to give an account for the life of our neighbor, of another human being. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is the last place I'll ask you to turn. Matthew chapter 5. So this is Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Messiah when he comes bringing new Torah. Not new Torah like I'm getting rid of the old, but grace upon grace already given. A, 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 a perfection, if you will, of an understanding. Bringing it to full maturity. And so Jesus interprets the sixth commandment uh, in this text in Matthew 5. So I'm going to read Matthew 5 verses 21 to 24. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, sister, raka, a term of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So Jesus understands that the root of murder is anger and hatred towards your brother. And so we gotta drive that out. His, Jesus's interpretation here draws to mind for me the passage that he cited back, what's the greatest commandment and what's the one that is like it? And the one that's like it is uh, love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19, 18. So his answer draws to mind the context of that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19. Don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you. So this is Leviticus 19, 16 to 18. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And so, yes, it is unlawful to murder another. It's unlawful to take someone's life, but it is un also unlawful to harbor hatred in our heart, to have anger, bitterness, resentment in our heart, to curse our neighbor, to do anything that in, uh, endangers our neighbor's life, to seek revenge, to bear a grudge. Those are also unlawful. And so we're charged, Jesus charges us to drive those things out of our life. Right? This is the root that leads to murder. The Deuteronomy 19 text said, if out of hate someone lies in wait, that's what we got to drive out of our heart. Now, this phrase that's in Leviticus 19 uh, says, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I want to I go 
uh, to another passage along those lines. This is also in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, just one verse. And here's the verse. It'll be up on the screen. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Now, what is a parapet? So you got a picture here. So we all, we, well, not all, right? We by and large have peaked roofs. Hopefully no one is walking around on your peaked roof who should not already be there and it's harnessed and all the usual, right? So this is a parapet. But if you have a flat roof where people can go up in that roof, you need to build a little wall around that roof. And that's what this guy is doing. So for you folks that are in the building trades, here, here's a text. First OSHA requirement, uh, Deuteronomy 22.8. So... Also, I love these pants. Uh, I would probably never wear such a pant pants. My family's not shocked, but I love these pants. But if you look closely, he's in bare feet. I don't think that's OSHA compliant, so I'm not advocating. Don't build your parapet in bare feet. That's probably not the best. But here's the idea. We are charged to proactively, proactively look out for our neighbor's life. You get that, right? You don't want to bring harm to your neighbor and do this to protect their life. The law of God is not only do nots, right? If you hear that, it's do nots. It's not only do nots. It's do's as well. It's both. So it's true. Don't take your neighbor's life, his wife, or his stuff. But also do look out for your neighbor's life, his wife, and his stuff. This leads, this also takes me back to, uh, to our last verse here in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So yes, this is Genesis 9, verse 7, but this is the very first command ever given to mankind, Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Two times it's in Genesis chapter 9. And here we have the heart of the commandment. What's the heart of the sixth commandment? Yes, true. Don't, take, don't murder. Don't take your neighbor's life. But the heart of the commandment is life. May life abound. May life increase across the face of the earth. May the image of God be spread across the earth. We sometimes hear arguments against being fruitful and multiplying. And I'd encourage you to reject those arguments. God delights in life. Children, the psalmist wrote, are a heritage from the Lord, a reward from him. And the one who has many is blessed. Now, over the last several months, uh, the Supreme Court decision regarding Roe v. Wade has been front and center, right, in our culture. And so I want to speak into it this morning. And the way I want to do that is by sharing from my own uh, story. So when I was conceived... My mother, at the time, had just turned 15 years old. And so that was 1968. I was born in 1969. That's four years before Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. And so in my adult years, I've pondered this, uh, and I've, had, I've asked, you know, what if it was 10 years later? What if it had been 10 years later? My, my conclusion is, is a pretty simple one, is just to be thankful that I have my life. I'm thankful for life. 
But I also recognize and realize uh, what it meant for my mom. And uh, it's not just an inconvenience. Her life was totally disrupted and altered um, because of this pregnancy. Now, my mom and my dad, they did get married. And I have a brother who's two years younger than me. And then probably a year, two years after that, they, my parents split up. And so my mom raised the two of us as a single mom. And so I want to give you a little thought exercise here for a moment, just to give you a sense of how disruptive this is. So imagine yourself at 30 years old. Now, maybe you're going back, or maybe you're projecting forward. So at 30 years old, my mom was raising, as a single parent, two teenage boys, 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. So she sacrificed much, she gave much. She went back, she got her GED, she worked multiple jobs. Um, she made sure to provide for my brother and I in every way. Uh, she made sacrificial decisions for my education to make sure that I had an opportunity uh, to have the best education that I could have. But hers is not the only sacrifice she could not have done it alone. It just wasn't possible to do it alone. So my extended family also uh, supported us in all kinds of ways. As young boys, my brother and I, we live with both sets of our grandparents for different seasons. My mom has two sisters. I live, I live my brother and I lived um, with both sets of aunts and uncles at different points in our lives, right? They opened our homes to us and helped to raise us. And then later in my life, uh, with one set of those aunts and uncles, I, I lived a second time through my high school years, through my college years. They gave much uh, for us. Mine was an unwanted pregnancy, maybe better said an unintended or an untimely pregnancy, but I was never an unloved child. I was never an unwanted or unloved child, excuse me. So. This, this life experience that I have informs me in these matters of the day as a follower of Jesus. I do believe it is right for us to be thankful for, for the Supreme Court's decision. And I understand, and I, knowing that that means others will have an opportunity to live, but I also recognize that it is right for followers of Jesus to show much love and support for moms, especially young teenage moms, young single moms, in the difficult and disruptive and even desperate situation of an untimely pregnancy. And I also know that it is right for followers of Jesus to continue to look out for the life of that boy or girl and that mom and dad as the child grows up. It is a high calling that we have <clears throat> to be people of life. God calls us to love to a love of neighbor that is beyond our natural capacity. <clears throat> Thanks be to God that in the words of Romans 5, his love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Later in my life, went to Penn State, and I had somebody there who was also looking out for my life. So a dear friend who shared the gospel with me at 24, gave my life to Christ, I had a second opportunity. I had a second opportunity to be born. I was born again. I put my trust in Jesus. 
and in the blood that he shed for me, even to eternal life. And that's a life that can never be taken from us. That life can never be taken. May we be life givers in every sense. Yes, with children, also in our words and in our deeds, even to eternal life. If we love our neighbor, we don't take our neighbor's life. We don't hate our neighbor in our heart. We do look out for our neighbor's life. And may we be fruitful and multiply, increasing life and spreading the image of Jesus, image of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I do praise you for your law, transformative, uh, the 10 words that held the, holds the world together, that makes a community work. Thank you even more for Jesus, for the forgiveness that we have, for the shed blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that called out to you from the ground. Lord, write your law on our hearts. Teach us your ways. Fill us with a love for neighbor that is beyond what we possibly will have in our own selfish capacity. Open our eyes to see those around us who have the need for life to be spoken into them. And may, be, may we be people who bring life to them. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Stand together. Hebrews 12, 24 says that the blood of Jesus, our mediator, the one who set the standard for the new covenant, says that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's turn our eyes towards the God who speaks and celebrates life. Celebrate the blood of life.
blood of life shed for us. And it's rewriting my history. And it covers me with destiny. And it's making all things right. The precious blood of Christ. Oh, it's rewriting my history. It covers me with destiny. It's making all things right. The precious blood of Christ. It's rewriting my history. And it covers me with destiny. It's making all things right. The precious blood of Christ. Rewriting my history, and it covers me with destiny, and it's making all things right. The precious blood of Christ is singing out with life, it's shouting down the lies. I said there were two elements uh, from that sermon, that BC sermon that I wanted to bring back. So the other one, the second element is the benediction that I uh, had that, that morning. And I want to use the same benediction this morning and speak this over us. And these are this is a selection of, of verses from Psalm, 1, Psalm 119, God's love poem to the law, or the psalmist's love poem to the law. So receive this. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they are far from your law. Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. 
Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. So may these, may these words rest upon you. May they sink deep into your bones and into your heart. You're dismissed. <laughs>